Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spread to the week of June 24th, Summertime Sadness. I'm your host, Dan Creator, here with Dan Belton. As we discuss the factors driving our expectation for wider credit spreads in the near term and why the move wider may have started today. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Okay, Dan. Well, as we sit down to record this episode of the podcast, I'm looking at the S&P and we're down 3% on the day. What's going on? Well, overnight, we saw some negative headlines with respect to U.S. and Eurozone trade tensions. But risk sentiment has gotten worse as the day has gone on, and that seems to be mostly virus-related. We've seen spikes in Florida, Texas, Arizona. A variety of southern states have seen infection rates get somewhat out of control. This afternoon, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut announced that visitors will be required to quarantine for 14 days. Germany has seen an uptick in infection rates. And I think broadly what we're seeing is that these fears of a second wave of infection rates seem to be coming maybe to fruition. Yeah, I mean, to me, it seems like the bigger debate is whether this is the second wave or just a continuation of the first wave. In any event, it seems to confirm one of the things that we were most worried about in our media interview view on credit spreads, which was just that the market wasn't pricing in a significant second wave that would potentially bring about renewed stay-at-home orders and lockdown measures that would be devastating to businesses that many of which had to fight significantly to make it through the first wave. And all along, we've expected summer to be more constructive from a virus standpoint. There was this hope that if the coronavirus behaved like other influenza strains, that during the summer, it would be more difficult for the virus to spread. And we had seen evidence of that from the very macro in the disparity between how Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere countries have experienced disease progression, but then even to the very micro, such as building evidence that slaughterhouses and meat processing centers seem to be hotbeds for outbreaks because there tends to be very cold air there and poor ventilation in those types of facilities, that summer could really provide a bit of a reprieve from the virus. So my concern at this point is that these outbreaks you're talking about in Florida, Arizona, Texas, this might be the reprieve. And already we're talking about going back to some more restrictive levels of quarantine. I mean, look at Texas specifically. Texas was one of the first states in the nation to reopen, and its Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was quoted famously as saying that he would rather die from coronavirus than see the Texas economy get dismantled by lockdowns. And now Texas is recommending that the safest place for people is in their homes. So if we're already seeing chatter of lockdowns potentially coming back, my concern is what happens in the fall? Yeah, I think it's safe to assume that if this is not going away in the summer, it certainly is not going to get better by the fall. And assuming we don't have a vaccine by then, which I think has to be the baseline assumption, things economically are going to get a lot worse. The IMF came out today and said that it is expecting global GDP growth to be negative 4.9% this year, which is significantly worse than the 3% it had 
predicted back in April. So as this virus gets worse, there's probably more and more downside risk to GDP and also to business growth and earnings projections and ultimately credit spreads. Right. And I want to highlight that this has been our view for a little while here, that the September through November time period was looking a bit dicey for credit spreads. And it's not just because of the virus. There's also a pretty significant headwind out there coming in the form of the presidential election in November that all polls indicate Donald Trump is extremely unlikely to win a second term. Now, that might mean that certain risks such as international trade relations in particular, may not be as significant going forward. But a President Biden certainly introduces his own set of potential headwinds for risk assets, not the least of which would be the potential for higher taxes. Now, we're sympathetic to the notion that raising taxes amid a pandemic might not be the most politically popular move. So maybe income taxes or business taxes aren't raised as aggressively as maybe we would have thought a year ago when we were projecting a potential Democratic presidential election. But something like capital gains taxes, which really don't impact most middle to lower income families, that might be a more popular way of increasing taxes on the wealthy, which could have dramatic impacts for the stock market and other risk asset valuations. Yeah. And to be clear, there's still a lot of time before the November election and a lot remains to be seen, but it's been a pretty bad past month or two for Donald Trump his odds and prediction markets now are looking like in the low 40%. So it certainly is seeming more and more like it's Joe Biden and the Democratic parties to lose. I agree with you. And these factors that we were highlighting, the virus and the election, they're fall events, but the market is obviously forward looking. And we were anticipating investors starting to price in some of these fall risks beginning in July and August. But our closest listeners might remember that we also talked about the potential for some technical pressure in late June that could give way to a more fundamental repricing of credit spreads in July and August. And that could be part of what we're seeing today. I mean, remember back in March, obviously what gave risk assets their floor and ultimately had them recovered as significantly as they did was stimulus from both the central bank and the government. But at the end of March, we had rebalancing flows that led to a bid for risk assets that maybe help establish that floor. And then from that floor, we were able to fundamentally reprice credit on this positive stimulus news. I'm worried about the potential converse of that happening at the end of June, where we've had a significant increase in risk asset prices and that rebalancing might put downward pressure into the end of June that could lead to a more fundamental repricing of credit in July and August. Yeah. And to your point on the fiscal stimulus side, it does seem like it's been surprisingly quiet on that front in regards to another round of stimulus, particularly considering the Trump administration knows that there's an election coming up in just four months. You would expect there to be more chatter around this next package. But I do think if and when we see a sustained downturn in risk assets, the Fed's going to be fairly quick to act. So what are the Fed's options and how effective is it going to be with both its existing tools and potentially new tools that it's going to roll out. Well, that's a very important point because I agree with you that the only thing that's going to stop a significant repricing of risk assets here is going to be more stimulus. But I think the key point is I think we will see a considerable backup in risk asset prices before more stimulus is deployed. Just given the strength of the recovery so far, there is considerable room for risk at prices to fall before the Fed takes significant new action in order to provide support. So that means that we would view any significant spread widening as a buying opportunity and that ultimately the Fed and the government will come to the rescue with stimulus, but that we should see a considerable widening in spreads before then, maybe not to the peaks that were established in March, but a considerable backup from current levels 
at which point we would expect to see the Fed come in with more stimulus. The question is, what do they have left to do? So I think it's safe to say that they would increase the variable purchases that they're doing. So the purchases of treasuries, MBS, and corporates, it seems safe to assume the Fed would ramp those up in pretty short order. But aside from that, it doesn't seem like the Fed has any obvious programs in waiting that the market is going to really like once they start to roll it out. We talked last week about how the Fed used its individual corporate bond buying program announcement somewhat in line with the stock market sell-off of two Thursdays ago. The question becomes, does the Fed have another program that it's waiting to announce, or is it going to be more of the same of increasing corporate bond buying, increasing treasury purchases, and maybe talking more about yield curve control? Yeah, it's a really important question too, because recall that the Fed liquidity facilities that were installed are set to expire at the end of September. So that adds another potential headwind to risk assets as you look ahead to that September period. As of right now, those purchases are set to expire at the end of September. And you have to think investors clearly see that on the horizon and look at that as a reason to sell risk assets ahead of the Fed liquidity dropping. Now, I would be shocked if the program actually expired at the end of September, but the Fed has to carefully begin to message an extension of those programs. They have to potentially begin to message an expansion of those programs. And that's difficult for the Fed because if you suddenly increase asset purchases to say $10 billion a week in IG corporates, it's difficult to then drop purchases back down to the current pace of one and a half or two billion a week. The market will want to see 10 billion a week, or it's potentially a risk-off signal for the market. So the Fed is really sort of walking a tightrope here and we're trying to keep risk sentiment positive in the market without over-delivering on stimulus that then could result in a risk-off move if it has to ultimately be taken back. So the logical extension of that conversation is what more does the Fed have to do? I think the obvious one right away is increasing the size of liquidity facilities. We know that they have Apple capacity to do that from the money given to the Fed from Treasury under the CARES Act. So they have trillions in more capacity that they could do to buy more corporate bonds. I would imagine that would be their next step. So let's say we see a backup in investment grade spreads from current levels by about 100 basis points or so. Do you think then we get an announcement from the Fed that they increase the size of their SMCCF from $250 billion to maybe something like $500 billion? Is that maybe the next move for the Fed, given a deterioration in risk sentiment? Yeah. I mean, I'm not even certain it would take 100 basis points. I think if you get a backup of 100 plus basis points, the Fed might take more significant action, like increase the volume of purchases in a given week. Changing the caps is something they should arguably do anyways. I mean, the PMCCF has a capacity of $500 billion, while SMCCF has 250 But as we've talked about in previous episodes, the PMCCF is unlikely to get any usage, probably, unless market conditions materially deteriorate from here. And even in that case, I can't imagine there being big demand for the primary market facility. So I would be shocked if those caps aren't flipped at some point and maybe it wouldn't even take 100 basis points to get that. Yeah, I agree. It'll be interesting to see how long it takes the Fed to increase its bond buying, even just incrementally, say, given this backup we see in risk assets today, does the Fed step in and buy more corporates starting this afternoon, starting tomorrow? Maybe we'll get some clarity on that when the data is released on Thursday. But stepping back for a second, and we've talked about this before, but I think it's important to stress that the Fed buying more and more corporate bonds 
Sure, it eases credit conditions, but it has limited capability to help corporate balance sheets. Again, the Fed is only providing loans, whereas a lot of corporations, what they really need right now are grants and they need the revenue streams that they had before the coronavirus to resume. And that's ultimately going to have to come from fiscal stimulus. It's an extremely important point because we went back and we looked at the previous two recession experiences to try and see when credit spreads peak. And the one thing we found in common is that credit spreads peak alongside the peak in defaults and downgrades in the previous two cycles. But what's interesting is that the peak in defaults and downgrades didn't come at similar times in the cycle. In 2008, the peak in defaults and downgrades came right there in November 2008 when Lehman went down. And that's when we saw credit spreads peak. After that, there were still elevated defaults and downgrades, but they never surpassed that level. And credit spreads never got wider than they did in November 2008. Now, 2001 was a very different experience. In 2001, the official recession ended at the end of 2001, and we didn't see defaults and downgrades or cyclical credit spreads peak until the second half of 2002, six to nine months after the official recession ended. Now, how can we explain this disparity in defaults and downgrades? And I think one way you can is by looking at the composition of those defaults. In 2008, more than 80% of defaults were financial sector companies. And this makes sense. In 2008, we had a very weak consumer. And then we were hit with a shock. And what happens to the consumer when there's a shock? The consumer doesn't have great access to credit, particularly when things get bad. Consumer credit is cut off. The consumer goes bankrupt and defaults on their financial obligations, which are owned by the financial sector. And then you see banks struggle. It all happens very quickly. But in 2001, the consumer was in pretty good shape. The weakness was in the business sector. And we had about 90% of defaults in the 0102 cycle come in non-financials. But when there's an economic shock, businesses have access to much greater credit. They can issue bonds. They can take up bank loans. They have credit facilities. They can issue more equity. There's just a lot more levers available to the business to pull. And so we can see businesses sort of stagger on for a little bit longer. And for most businesses, time is all they needed. They'll emerge from the economic shock with a little bit more debt, but an otherwise healthy institution. But some companies post-recession earnings stream don't justify the leverage taken on in order to survive the shock, and they ultimately go bankrupt. And of these two scenarios, the current environment more closely resembles 2001, in my view, which potentially means that the peak in defaults and downgrades hasn't yet come. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that we're going to see credit spreads go wider than they did in March, but I'm saying that we could see another significant increase in credit spreads alongside heavier defaults and downgrades. Yeah, I agree with that point. And I think it's important to emphasize just how aggressive the Fed has been this time around versus back in 2001. And I think given the amount of liquidity that's been provided to a lot of these corporations, we might not see such a spike in defaults like we saw in 2001, but there's going to be a lot more corporate weakness for a lot longer time. Yeah, I agree with you. And the long-term ramifications on that for an economy is probably the subject of a different podcast. But for our purposes here, with stimulus starting to fade, I'm concerned about an increase in defaults and downgrades in that fall window that we've already talked about that could really exacerbate weakness. So I think to sum it all up, our view basically remains unchanged. And the events of the past week and even of the equity market sell-off today are just serving to strengthen 
the conviction behind that view, which is that risk assets probably got ahead of themselves in pricing the significant amount of risk that's presented to the economy from the pandemic because of massive stimulus from the government and the central bank. And now we're starting to see technicals turn more negative that could lead to this fundamental repricing and spreads that we're anticipating. Now, more stimulus is probably going to come, and at which point we would view that as a buying opportunity for spreads. But we think you're going to have better entry levels than you have right now. And we encourage waiting for those. So Dan, before wrapping up, I think it's important to mention quickly an announcement from the FCA we saw yesterday that makes it seem incrementally more likely that LIBOR is going to go away by the end of 2021. Specifically, the FCA announced that details around the end of LIBOR could be announced as soon as November or December of this year. Is that right? Yeah, and that comes as pretty big news for people following the LIBOR transition because there was this thought that the pandemic has really commanded the attention of a lot of resources that may have otherwise been deployed at readying the financial system for the end of LIBOR, and that the December 31st, 2021 deadline may need to be pushed back. But it doesn't appear that that's the case. Yeah. So our base case has been since the beginning of this process that the deadline would be extended by maybe a year or two, just given where the cash market was and how far it needed to go. And it's starting to seem like the FCA is pushing back against that notion and is really adamant about this end of 2021 deadline. Yeah. I mean, our view is rooted in the lack of readiness in the cash markets. Derivatives are probably ready to go right now, but the cash market just isn't ready yet. And that was never more clear than when the Fed announced the Main Street Lending Facility in their original technical details it was revealed that those loans are going to be denominated in SOFR. But after receiving a significant amount of pushback from smaller community banks and their clients, it became clear that those loans had to be denominated in LIBOR, which just shows you that the cash market isn't yet ready. But even if that's the case, it's hard to hold on to this view if the FCA is going to be dead set on the end 2021 deadline, regardless of whether or not the cash market's ready. Right. At a certain point, it comes down to the FCA and the FCA alone. U.S. regulators have limited power to ensure that LIBOR continues to exist past the end of 2021. And so if the FCA deems that LIBOR will end at the end of 2021, that's likely how it's going to go. So there are a few key factors to watch for in the coming months that will really give us some information as to if and when LIBOR will go away. And the first one of those is the official release of ISDA's fallback protocol, which is expected for July. That will precipitate any further details surrounding the discontinuation of LIBOR. But then also we have the quote-unquote big bang switch over to sulfur discounting of all cleared swaps, which is scheduled for October. Now that's extremely important because then we could start to see more volumes in SOFR markets start to pick up, SOFR futures markets in particular, that could pave the way towards term SOFR and more assets directly tied to SOFR. And these important milestones that the market really needs to have if we're going to realistically have this 2021 deadline stay in force. So the SOFR conversation actually, you know, during the pandemic and even in the months before it, it's been pretty quiet. We haven't had much to talk about because just the wheels have sort of been turning in the background. Now, I think in the course of the next few months, we really need to see volume start picking up. We really need to see generation of sulfur-linked assets in a meaningful degree. Things really need to start happening now if 2021 is going to be realistic, and we'll find out if that's the case, and we'll be certain to keep our listeners informed on whether or not we think that's happening. 
And so, Dan, before we conclude, just a quick programming note. Given next week's holiday and the following week, we'll be doing a macro roundtable, which means we won't be recording our High Quality Spreads podcast. And then we have a vacation the following week. I think that's, what, is it four weeks we won't have another podcast? Yeah, it's going to be about a month till our next episode. But we will continue to put out written material in our dailies and weeklies. So please reference those for our updated thoughts. And we will be back before anyone misses us, I'm sure. Thanks for listening and have a great 4th of July holiday. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise it constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 